Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna alhamdulillahi na'maduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ghfiruhu wa nasta'hdi'uhu. وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا فَمَنْ يَهْدِهِ اللَّهُ فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ ثُمَّ أَمَّا بَعْدُ السَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ uh, The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in an authentic hadith he said that when people gather for the purpose of remembering God, the angels fill the space between where they are gathering to the first heaven. And when the angels are returning back to God, God asked the angels by way of illustration, of course he knows, what are my servants doing? And the angels mentioned they're sitting around and they're praising you and they're glorifying you. And then God asked, what do they want? They want heaven. They want to avert the punishment of hell. They want to be forgiven by you. And God says, forgiveness for all of them, heaven for all of them, and freedom or uh, salvation from hell for all of them. And then the angels say, but there's one person among them, ja'ali qada'il haja. He just came for, you know, his intention wasn't as sincere. He heard that Tetlif serves uh, Moroccan mint tea. And he said, you know what, man, I, I could go for some tea tonight. Or she knew that her friend would be at Tetlif. And, you know, I'm not really into that, but I'll go with you. And so the angels say, what about that person? They weren't there with the same intention as everybody else. And Allah says, hum qawmun. There are people, right? Tonight we are a people. Even the person loosely affiliated with them will not go away empty-handed. So they're forgiven too. So in the same way that we have as an expression in English, guilty by association, anybody here can be blessed by association. MashaAllah. So... We're reading the book of Imam Ghazali, Ya Ayyuhal Walad, you know, Dear Son, which as Umer mentioned, and I failed to mention last week, was actually addressed to a student of the Imam. And he begins addressing him, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Know, O son and dear friend, may Allah extend your years in his obedience. May Allah extend your years in his obedience. You know, one of the things that uh, is, I think it's safe to say this is a commonality among most people, is that most of us love life and we're quite apprehensive about death. That's just a natural human thing. So if you ask anybody, whether or not you want a long life, expect them to reply in the affirmative. Of course, I want a long life, right? But here, Imam Ghazali is saying to this spiritual aspirant, this student, may Allah extend your years in his obedience, that life is good for you as long as you spend your life in the obedience of Allah. But if you are going to for instance, be in a state of obedience and then be in a state of disobedience. It would be best for you in light of the eternality of the next life to end your life in a state of obedience. You know, the Prophet ﷺ said in an authentic hadith, and this is one of those hadith that should scare us, should shake us, should make us uh, vigilant in our religious practice. He said that there is a type of person that is doing the actions of a person of paradise. And if you saw this person in their uprightness, 
in their religiousness, you would assume them a person of paradise. And then as they are about to die, what is written overtakes them. They change their course. She gives up that righteousness. He gives up that righteousness. She leaves that religious observance. He leaves that religious observance. And then they die in that state. And they are taken to task when they meet God for the way they died. The matter of life is judged according to the way that it ends. And that's just the way it is. You know, I remember uh, saying to myself, when I first learned about this idea of a a good ending, that man, isn't that kind of unfair? Like if a person spends 80 years of her life in devotion, in service, in righteousness, and then just the last five years decides to apostatize, right? To leave Islam and to denounce the oneness of God and denounce the messengership of Muhammad wasallam. Does that five years take precedent over or take precedence over that 80 years? That almost seems unfair, but that's just the way that it is. It's almost like when you look at a sports series, it's about who wins four games out of seven. It's not about who has the most points uh, cumulatively. It's not like, well, actually, if you add all the points that were scored over the course of the series, they had more points than them because every game they won, they won by 20. And every game they won, they only won by one point. That's not the way the game is played, right? It's about who wins four games out of seven. Similarly, our lives are judged according to the way they end. And in the same hadith, the Prophet وسلم, he said, there is a kind of person who does all of the actions of someone you would assume destined to hell, destined to perdition, to punishment. And then what is written overtakes them as they near the end of their earthly existence and they become religious and they become righteous. And then God takes them in that state. So one of those descriptions should make us cautious, should make us vigilant, should make us careful. And the other description in the Hadith should make us hopeful and also never arrogant toward anybody. You know, I've shared this story before, but because it's a personal story of mine, it's hard for me to talk about this Hadith and this lesson without sharing the story. Um, I grew up with my grandfather and he was a hard man to live with. You know, he served in Vietnam. He experienced the horrors of war. Um, I think uh, he was initially introduced to heroin and drugs while serving in the military. Addiction continued to be a problem for him um, when he returned to the States. Um, you know, my grandfather was a man who, if I were to describe him in a sentence, I would say someone in immense pain. Sometimes he would stand up in the middle of our home and just blasphemy, just, just curse God, curse religion, curse people of faith. You know, once members of the, the Church of Jehovah's Witnesses they came to our home as they would, you know, randomly go to people's homes. And they attempted to evangelize to my grandfather. And he cursed and he, you know, was swearing at them so viciously that they just closed their brochures and pamphlets and said, we will never come back to this house. This is like the kind of pain that I remember my grandfather in. And when I first embraced Islam, I was still living with him. I was about maybe 16. And he would make a point of seeing me in my prayer and laughing very loudly 
like mocking my prayer. <laughs> Sometimes he would ask me, what you think all that's supposed to do? Right? He was just a very, uh, he had a very contrarian personality. What is all that supposed to do, right? When we moved, my grandmother, my mother, my sister and I, he stayed at the old apartment. We just couldn't live with him any longer. Many years went by. I only barely saw him. I was in Egypt and I got a call from my grandmother who told me that she was with my grandfather and that he wanted to speak with me. And you know, his voice at this point is weakened. He had uh, cirrhosis of the liver from his drinking. He was also an alcoholic. And he was attempting to tell me that he wanted to become Muslim before he died. He said, Will, my given name is Will, but only my mother calls me Will. No way, everybody calls me Obey. You know, strangest thing to hear my mother and my wife converse about me. My wife just keeps saying Obey and my mother keeps saying Will, but they're talking about the same person. <laughs> yeah, will, Will, right? I wanna take my last rights as a Muslim. And I was shocked. Right? Can you send somebody to the hospital or something like that? So I called someone from Eshidawa on the west side of Chicago. They went to Heinz VA, right, a military hospital. They gave him his shahada and he died like three days later. SubhanAllah. Right? So the idea that a long life is uh um, categorically always good. A good ending is good. If life is short, if life is long, it is about how one lives, not how long one lives. So even Ghazali says, May Allah extend your years in his obedience. He says, And may God take you along the path of his beloved. May God take you along the path of those whom he loves. How many of you have heard people that say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious? Are you familiar with that expression? Right? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Usually, a person that says that has a very self-defined, self-contained kind of religious sense, right? They have, you know, and, and, and they are to be admired for that. At the very least, they're striving, they're seeking something. They haven't accepted any prophetic guidance, but they're looking for something. Here, when the Imam says, is that it's not sufficient. Like, and this is the Islamic tradition. It's not sufficient just to have my own individual thing with God. No, I want to be with the community of women and men that he loves, right? I want to be with them. You see, part of this faith is inescapably communal, right? Even when we read Surah Al-Fatiha, we said what? Not those whom have earned your anger, right? And not those that have gone astray. That this faith is communal. And if you are kind of a hyper-individualistic person, that you don't value the community of faith, you just value your own experience of faith, then it will be difficult for you to realize the truth of this religion. Right, and to take you along the path of those whom he loves. You know, one of the things that I really love about this faith is that whenever I'm standing up to pray, I get these, I get a, just this feeling that, man, I'm worshiping God in a way that is transgenerational and transgeographic. Like people before me have done this. 
and people in other parts of the world with other experiences do this, it makes it feel authentic to me. Like sometimes when we fast in the month of Ramadan, I'm always thinking people have been doing this for almost 1400 years. They have been seeking God upon this path, seeking the realization of transcendence upon this path. And that what I'm doing is not merely an invention of my own creativity. Rather, this is a path. And this is a path that produces not only obedient Muslims, it produces friends of God. You know, we gotta get back to talking about wilaya. I know some people, subhanAllah, when you say the word weli, right? When you say the word weli, you say the word friend of God. Some people are already like, okay, now we on some goofy stuff. Now we on some goofy, now we on some Californian Islam. <laughs> now we on some goofy stuff. Now we, okay, now we, now we on some silly stuff. No, 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 no. This is a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that through our worship and especially worship that is not our obligation, we can become friends with the Almighty. That the Almighty befriends those that worship sincerely. Those that worship above the merely obligatory. He becomes friends with them. And I think that one of the things that has made our religious life dull, boring, and uninspiring is we talk about our commitment like it's just, uh, you know, checking off the task of a taskmaster. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. And it's not wrong for one of us to ask. So if I do all of that, what will happen, right? What, what is supposed to happen to me in my experience, right? God answers this question when he says to the prophet, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبُكُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَغْفِرُ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ God says, say to the people, O messenger of God, if you love God, then follow me. God will love you. This should be our aspiration, to be loved by God. And I've been told, I don't know, but I've been told. And you can find people who do know. They have direct experiential knowledge of what it means to be loved by God. And you can seek those people. And you can seek their suhbah. You can seek their companionship. And you can seek their counsel. Right? But I've been told that one of the most special effects of being in that kind of relationship with the divine was is fear and anxiety being removed from you. Right? That you no longer grieve over anything that happened in the past because you understand that whatever happened was the decree of one who loves you. And you are no longer afraid of the future because you realize that the future is in the hands of one who loves you. You know, um, I was reading this book that I recommend uh, on divine love by A. A Hilwa. And she was mentioning that, you know, um, one uh, sheikh was trying to teach uh, his wife about divine love. And she said, how are you so confident about the future? How don't you have like greater anxiety about what's going to happen tomorrow? She said, even when things get crazy, you appear just really cool and collected and calm. And then it's mentioned in the story that he took out a knife and he put it to her neck. Don't do this. Don't do this. These are like ancient sage stories that like communicate points, but it's not that you should actually do this. He took out a sword and he put it to her neck and he said, are you scared? 
are you scared? And she said, absolutely not. And he said, why aren't you scared? And his wife said, because I know you love me and you'd never do anything to hurt me. And then he withdrew the sword. He said, see, that's how I feel about my Lord. I know you love me and you would never do anything to hurt me. Then she understood. Are you scared? I'm not scared at all. Because I knew you would never do anything to hurt me. That's how I feel about my Lord. He continues. Counsel. Counsel. That counsel, nasiha, advice, this is something that you find from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So if you, and this is a student of deen, and all of you are students of deen, by the way, I want you to know that whenever we read these books and we hear about the tulab, and the Talabatul Ilm, the students of knowledge, as a literate people that read, that have access to classes online and access to great libraries, in many ways, maybe not our level of learning, but our, our level of access, we are like people of knowledge in terms of how we should hold ourselves accountable. I don't want you to hear what the Imam is saying. Like, okay, that's just for like Sidi Umayr Hasib and other Imams and, you know, Ustad Zainab Ansari and Sheikh Aisha Prime. And that's just for people like that. Not for people like us. No, in terms of our access, we are like students of knowledge, right? He says to his student, if you have sought advice from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, what possible advice can you get from me, right? What possible advice can you get from me? Now, of course, Imam Ghazali is going to continue advising him and he's going to write the book. But here he's just trying to set the, uh, the priorities. That if you want knowledge, seek knowledge from the source, the yenba, right? The, the source of knowledge, the spring of knowledge is the prophet, peace be upon him. And if you have knowledge, if you have that prophetic knowledge, what can you get from me? And the way that I apply this to myself, and I think all of us should apply this, any knowledge we are in a position to offer anyone is secondary knowledge. We are not primary, uh, um, um, you know, uh, sources of knowledge. Knowledge does not come from any of us primarily. All of the knowledge that we have is derivative, right? We are merely conveyors of knowledge. We are not original creators of knowledge. And the great task of the man or woman of faith is taking this time-honored legacy of knowledge and putting it into language that resonates with people across the broad spectrum of the human condition. This is all we're doing. We're not making anything up. We're just trying to make this ancient knowledge relevant to 22-22-22, right? Did you guys know that was today? That was like a big deal on the radio, right? So my job is not to create any knowledge, right? You know, which is, um, subhanAllah, you know, I grew up, in the hip hop generation. And the worst thing that you could be in hip hop culture was a biter. Somebody who bit someone else's style. And the best thing you could be was original. Like that was the worst denunciation that anybody could direct towards you. Man, you're a biter. Like that style is not originally yours. And I remember doing Islamic studies, I carried some of that with me. Like I felt like all of the references that I made when I taught, they had to be my references. There couldn't be anybody. I had to find my own references. I couldn't say anything that anyone else had said. And I once was talking to a brother much more knowledgeable than me, older than me. And I said to him, you know, whenever I uh, use a quote that you mentioned in your lecture, I always cite you. And he said, Habib, you don't have to do that. 
you don't have to do that. This isn't hip hop. This isn't like if I said something and you said, man, he bit my style. He copied my style. None of us are the originators of this knowledge. We are all taking what we've learned and trying to make it relevant to the people we speak to. And this is all that you're doing in your capacity as a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, taking this prophetic spring of knowledge and just trying to find the right idiom so that the person you're speaking to can grasp it. But you don't have to make up anything, right? Then he says, and if you've been studying all of these years and you haven't learned from the Prophet Wasallam, what have you been doing with your life? <laughs> right? So if you've been studying all of these years and you haven't learned anything from the Prophet what have you been doing with your life? He continues, amongst the counsel that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam offered his ummah was his statement, the sign of God turning away from his servant is his servant's preoccupation with that which doesn't concern him or her. He says, the sign that God has abandoned the servant is that we become preoccupied with things that either A, are not worthy of our preoccupation. Has any, has that, is that just my experience or has anyone else experienced that? Have you ever spent like hours doing something and then wondered to yourself, yo, man, I just spent three hours of my life doing this. Right? The word in Arabic for breath is nafas. It comes from the same root as nafis or precious. Because time is the most precious thing we have. And if you spend your time preoccupied with things that are not worth the preciousness of your time, this is a sign that, you know, um, there needs to be some, some correction. There needs to be some rectification. You know, um, you know, I remember, and this was, you know, because I'm, mashallah, I'm, I'm very personable. I like to talk. Anyone who knows me, they know I like to talk. But I can, I can make conversation with probably anybody, probably anybody. And when I was in the madrasa, we were doing tahfid al-Quran. We were doing Quranic memorization. I was there with uh, a brother named Ali Toft, right? Maybe some of you know Ali Toft. Maybe some of you know his brother, Amir uh, Toft. And Ali, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. He used to memorize at night. He would, you know, he would sleep a little bit and then he would get up and memorize at night. We lived at the Madrasa. And so I would also get up at night. But when I woke up, I would sit next to Ali with my mushaf and I would read, but I would always want to converse. You know, Ali, man, I tell you. And sometimes I could pull him into a conversation, one and a half, two hours, you know what I'm saying? You know, we would sit in front of this. And so one day he just closed the mushaf and he told me, Obeid, I like talking to you but I'm here to memorize the Quran. And if we talk every night, I'm never going to complete my memorization. I'm never going to become Hafid. So right now, in this time, in this place, although I love you, this conversation just, it doesn't concern me. I just can't, it's not worth this time. I was broken, like, Ali, I thought you loved talking to me. Ali, we do this every night. I mean, we do, I mean, it's like a week straight. You know, I wake up and, man, I'm telling you, right? But the next morning, as we were praying Fajr, my respect for him, like, it was through the roof because he was clear. 
Like, this is not what I'm doing with this time in my life. Right? If you, if, at a different time, this would be great. And I think the ability to say that to somebody that you love, that, you know what, this just doesn't concern me. I can't be involved with this. Not, not to this extent. I just, you know, it's like, this would be, in this circumstance, a waste of my time. This would not be a wise use of my time, right? The other meaning of that is not minding your own business. The Prophet said, From the beauty of a woman's Islam, from the beauty of a man's Islam, is that they leave things that are not their business. Subhanallah. I look at, you know, subhanallah, now it's like, I go onto my phone. When I want to search something on Google, of course, they've, you know, uh, you know, created certain headlines that according to my searches, they assume would be of interest to me. That is probably the most depressing moment of my day. When I, I look at those headlines and I think, dang, the Google al algorithm thinks that I'm just uh, a completely shallow. <laughs> when I look at the headlines that come up for me, it's like, some new part is being developed on a car. I'm like, yep, that's what they think I'm into. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, something about the new Kanye documentary. I say, yep, that's what they think I'm into. You know, that's what, that's, that's what, you know, and I, I use it almost as a mirror. You know, when I, when I, when I open it and I pull it up, I said, dang, this is what they think. This is what they think of your brother, right? But it's also, an indication of how much stuff I spend my time on that isn't my business. Why am I worried about that? You know, and celebrity culture is one of those things, man. It's one of those things. You know, somebody once said that they were in a gathering with Imam Malik. May God be pleased with him. And Malik posed the question to his students. He said, is there anyone worse than a person that loses their akhirah, right? Their hereafter, chasing the dunya? And all of the students replied, no. Nobody is worse than someone who gives up the next life, which is eternal, pursuing this life, which is temporal. And then Imam Malik said, no, there is somebody worse than that. Somebody who gives up the next life pursuing someone else's dunya in this life. That they spend all of their time gossiping about what other people have. So-and-so just bought a private plane. Jeff Bezos came out of space in a space suit and gave away $100 million. I'm not going to lie. When I saw that, I said, subhanAllah. He came down out of space, man. Gave away $100 million. La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah. You know, this person has this. This person has this. This, per this person is getting divorced. These people are about to get married. It's like, you could have used that precious time and space in your mind for so many things that were more beneficial than that. But you used it for that? SubhanAllah. Here, the imam is reminding his student, this is a sign that God has, you know, essentially, i'rad is, you know, turned away from that person. But we can always turn back. He, men he mentions that he also said, although in the commentary, the person mentions that this is not a statement of the Prophet Wasallam, But Imam Ghazal, attributed to the Prophet a man who misses out or a woman who misses out on an hour of their life in other than what they were created for is worthy of prolonged sorrow which is not to say that we can't have any moments of enjoyment right no but all and see this is where you see mashallah the very profound balance of Islam. Everything that we do 
should be preceded by the invocation of God's name. Everything that we do. And if you're doing something that you can't invoke God before doing it, you know what I'm about to say. You probably shouldn't be doing it. And here we see the comprehensiveness of the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad because even be, you know, he said in an authentic hadith, in your conjugal relationship, right? In your, why am I translating it like that? We're all, well, we're not all adults. I see my, my young brother back there. But in your marital relationship, God gives you a good deed, right? One of the sahaba was shocked by this. Whenever I read this tradition, I'm always thinking, he was thinking, man, I knew Islam was good, but Islam is that good? I get rewards for something I enjoy doing? No, he asked that. I'm not making this up. And the Prophet said, certainly you get reward for that which you enjoy doing. Because if you did it in other than a way that God allows, then you would be taken to task for that. So when you fulfill that aspect of your humanity, of your marital relationship in a way that is pleasing to Allah, you are rewarded for that, right? So this is not saying every part of our lives should just be worship, but even those things that we do that are mundane, like entertainment or hanging out with friends or you know, athletic pursuits or travel, or it should be something before which we can say the name of God. You know, I remember, um, you guys want to know a, ve a very interesting ruling. This is one of the, this is one of those very cool rulings. And I've mentioned it before, but I think it warrants being mentioned again. In the Maliki school of law, if a person is traveling, and the purpose of their travel is something haram, they cannot shorten or join their prayers, right? If the purpose of your trip is something impermissible, you, you don't get the convenience of shortening your prayers. Can you imagine that? I'm on my way to Mexico to pick up a kilo of cocaine. Hold on, let me stop, man. Let me, hold on, let me stop. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me pray. Let me pray. Let me, let me, let me just pray the hood and ask. Yeah, I'm getting ready to go pick up this low. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll get ready to go pick up this low, but I, I got to make Duhur and Asr. I got to make Maghrib and Isha, even though I'm going to pick up a low. No, in the Maliki school, you have to make four rakah of Duhur in its time for your prayer to be valid. And four rakah of Asr in its time for your prayer to be valid. Why? Because the purpose of your trip is something haram. Right? You know, you, Allah offers you facilitation when the purpose of your trip is something halal. So everything you do, it should be something before which you can say, Bismillah. If it isn't, check yourself. You know, one of the best du'as, you know, I like cars. And an older friend of mine, whenever I would get a car, he would always say to me, may Allah make all of your trips in this car halal. Why are you laughing so hard, man? <laughs> May Allah make all of your trips in this car halal. And that would always put something on my mind like, yo, man, what you saying? Right? But he was forcing me to think that if you turn the ignition of the car and you're on your way to do something that isn't permissible, are you still going to make the dua of suffer? Are you still going to make the dua of traveling? Does a person really make the dua of traveling when they're going to be with their girlfriend? Yeah, baby, I'm like five minutes out. No, that, that doesn't go together. It doesn't go together. You know, you make the dua, you're like, ooh, it doesn't go together. So he's not saying if you spend an hour of your life and you're not in worship, you know, oh man, you know, you, you, you deserve sorrow. He's saying, anything you do, mention God's name. Mention God's name. You know, I had a friend named Nu'aman Abdul Karim. 
And whenever I would drive with him, every turn he would make, he would say the basmala, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And I said, man, why do you do that? He said, because every turn I make, I want to make sure that I, I, it's a turn that I can make, right? Because maybe I'm driving down the street and I make the wrong turn, quote, unquote. Now my destination, when I say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, it's going to remind me. No, I don't need to, I don't need to stop at the weed man's house. You know, I don't say Bismillah and then pull up and yeah, let me get a dub. No, no, no. I just, I say the Bismillah, it reminds me. No, 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 right? So this is what he's referring to. Then he says, by the way, this is very scary for me. He says, whoever passes 40 years of age without his good surpassing his evil should prepare for punishment. This counsel is sufficient for people of knowledge. Right? He says, You know, 40 years of age is always regarded in our tradition as the age of full maturity. This is when you're, uh, you know how, you know, uh, my, my daughter's probably 16 and she's like, dad, I'm a grown woman. Hold on. Gotta figure this out. Uh, you know, she's like, dad, you? I'm, trying to, I'm trying, to, trying to sit some way that I can see you as a grown woman. I'm trying to see if I lean like this because right now I still see somebody, you know, uh, that's growing and maturing and developing and that is in need of guidance. Right, we actually, a person is a shab until the age of 40. 40 in the Islamic tradition is considered full maturity, right? And once you arrive at 40, it's kind of like, okay, some of the traps that you might have fallen into as a younger person, you're supposed to know a little bit better now, right? You're supposed to know how to control yourself a little bit better now. You're supposed to know, you know, it's almost like, and you know, Michelle, I'm 39. Alhamdulillah. I know I don't, I love, you guys thought I was 29. I know. I, I'm 39. Alhamdulillah. And um, now, what's interesting about this though, in the lunar years, I'm already 40. SubhanAllah. Right? Um, in the month of Ramadan, a friend of mine, uh, John Halliwell, he sent a text. And he said, the day you became a full grown man. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, this is your birthday on the lunar calendar. This is your 40th birthday. I'm like, subhanAllah, it is. You know, it was like this kind of this big thing, right? But age is a significant factor in judgment. You know, there's a hadith of the Prophet And this hadith, it's, it's one of those really, for me, startling hadith. It's like, wow. Almost like Allah does grade on a curve somewhat. He says, there are three people that will be subjected to God's punishment on the day of judgment. The first he mentions, المتكبر, an arrogant poor person. An arrogant poor person. The reason, not that if you're rich and arrogant, it's understandable. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if anyone has been humbled by the world, right? It's somebody in a state of financial difficulty. If, if there is any person that knows, hey, arrogance is not what you want to do because just as God raises, God can lower just as you have been given, all that you have been given can be taken away from you. Trust me, I know, right? You would think a person with that experience would advise against arrogance. Hey, hey, look, look, I see you. You're doing really well. Your business is thriving. Hey, look, me, me too. Once I had it like that too. 
I was, I was in black enterprise. I'm back living with my mother. Don't treat people like that. Don't treat people, I'm telling you, don't behave arrogantly. Don't behave insolently. Don't talk down to people. I'm telling you, view my story as a cautionary tale. When I had money, I thought I was on top of the world and I would talk to everybody in a condescending way. Then I lost everything. And now those people scarcely want to help me. See, this is what you look for, for somebody that has had that experience. But al-faqir al-mutakabbir, a person that is poor and still arrogant, it's like you haven't learned your lesson, right? God has given you this challenging situation and you're still behaving like this? Subhanallah. The second person he mentioned, al-imam al-kadhab, or qa'id al-kadhab, a leader that tells lies. Not to say that if a person is subordinate to someone else's leadership, it's okay to lie, but it's more understandable that maybe I was put in a position where I wanted to avert some kind of consequence or I thought I was going to get in trouble. So my lying was an extension of my being disempowered in a situation. Like I was in a situation and I felt like I had to lie because I was disempowered. But if, if you're the leader of the organization, you're the leader of the family, you're the leader of the community, why would you need to lie? It says that there's something really uh, amiss. There's something really broken in like, you're, why would you have to lie? Like what? What fear of reprisal did you have? You're the leader and you lied. And then the last person he mentioned in this hadith, a Sheikh Zani, an older person that has an illicit sexual relationship. Right? A Sheikh Zani, an older person that has an illicit sexual relationship. That does not mean that younger people that end up in those relationships are, you know, uh, you know, it's okay, but it's more understandable. See, a younger person might not know that at the end of this short, quick road of lust, there's nothing. See, a younger person might actually think that there's something at the end of this, right? You, there's something, there, there will be something there at the end. An older person knows there's nothing at the end of that. There's nothing, this will only end one of two ways in shame, in regret, or the loss of one's faith. That's the only place that this is going. See, an older person can see that, right? How much time we have? We have about six minutes, mashallah. Imam Ghazali says something here that I think is really instructive and really good. He says, An-nasihatu sahlun, wal-mushkilu kabuluha. He says, advice is easy. The difficult thing is accepting the advice. Al-intisah, acting according to the advice. You know, I always joke with people and I say, if you want to know the difference between knowledge and practice, the only thing you need to do is observe how everybody gives sage marital advice. You ever ask somebody for marital advice? Everybody gives great marital advice. And the advice is always very high-minded. It's like, just forget, just, just forgive your husband. Just forgive your husband. You know, just forget, look, if, if this is what your wife wants, just let her have it. You know, I remember once, this was, I don't think he would mind my sharing this. Dr. Omar, Hafidullah, his, his advice to me, he said, when dealing with our wives, we don't know the word no. That was the advice. 
whatever she wants goes. You know, it's like we don't know the word no. We don't, we don't, we don't know the word no. I'm like, that that's the advice. Right? That's very easy to say that, right? It's very easy to tell someone just, you know, more generosity, right? More forgiveness, more forbearance. This is what it takes. But doing that is much more difficult. Why? Because saying it is only a reflection of what you know. See, all of those things are true. More generosity, more forbearance, more forgiveness. But when it's time to be forbearing, it's time to be generous, it's time to be forgiving, your nuffs, your ego is involved in that. And that's why it's not, it's, you know, uh, one of my favorite scenes in cinema, you know, right up there with, uh, well, I know all of you guys are good Muslims and you don't watch movies. Y'all know that ain't true. But one of my favorite scenes in cinema, right up there with, you know, uh, a few good men and Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth, right? I ordered the cold red, right up there with that was Al Pacino in the film Scent of a Woman. Now this film has some parts, you know what I mean? I'm not telling you to go watch the movie, right? Has some parts, you know, that I don't wanna be on record as having endorsed, right? But there's a scene in the movie where he's defending, you know, his young caretaker who was being expelled from school or suspended from school. And he says, all my life, I knew the right thing to do, but I could never do it because it was too hard, right? See, it's not just about what you know. The reason we pray, the reason we fast is not so that we know more, it's to strengthen our souls so that we can do what we know to be right. That's, that's why we're doing all of this praying. That's why we're fasting. It's trying to strengthen the soul so that I can do what I know to be right. It's not just, you know, if you ask most people, you know, right, wrong, most of us know, yeah, this was right and this was wrong. Especially after somebody makes a mistake, they say, what? That wasn't a, re a reflection of who I am or who I strive to be. I mean, I know what I did was wrong, but it's a reflection of what? A weakness in my soul that I actually succumbed to that action. It's not, a, it's not a reflection of what I think, right? And this is why integrity, you know, all of, all of you I'm sure know that an integer is a whole number. Any integer is a whole number. The word integrity comes from the same root as integer. Integrity is wholeness. Integrity is when your actions match what you believe. That's integrity. That's the only thing integrity is. When what I believe to be right is reflected in my actions. That's integrity. Getting to a place of integrity is always a great challenge, right? It's always going to be a great challenge, right? Oh, it's time for question and answer. Getting to a place of integrity is always going to be a challenge because it's much easier to know what is right than to do what is right. Um, and here is where, um, I mentioned this just briefly, but I think it bears mentioning once more. This is really the, uh, the real utility of worship. You know, when I see people that want to change, and they are impacted by what Dr. Sherman Jackson calls a post-enlightenment cult of genius. That they think, if I want to change, the only thing I have to do is just change my mind. I just have to change my thinking, right? And I, I know about you know NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, and Sometimes, I'm not saying that those methods don't work. I know Khaled Harun is here. I know, I know, I know he likes stuff like that. 
you know, I, you're right. But the best way to change is to engage in very intentional work on the soul. It's not merely just to, you know, adopt new ways of speaking or to try to assume new patterns of thinking. Those, those are important too. But trying to train the soul so that it becomes strong enough to do what you know is right. This is why we worship, right? This is why you put your head down there on that floor. This is why you pray when the prayer comes in. In spite of maybe it being difficult or being a busy time during the day, it's to train the soul to do something against its own will. That's really the, if you know, okay, this, this is, these, these are the cliff notes. That's really the, 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 the greatest uh, practical benefit of prayer. I'm talking about salah, is that even when you didn't want to do it, you did it. That's what discipline is. I can't believe I'm sitting at Tetleaf among all of you quoting Mike Tyson, but I'm quoting Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson said, discipline is doing something you don't want to do, but doing it like you love it. That's discipline. So with regard to something like prayer, you know that your soul is beginning to expand when it's like, man, I don't want to get out of this bed and pray this fajr, man. It's so warm and so cozy underneath my covers, man. I kid you not, man. Sometimes lifting those blankets is like lifting 315. It's like lifting three plates. It's like, yo, man, it's so bad. Especially if you got hardwood floors. Oh my God. That, that the first time your foot touches those floors, you're like, man, I was just in the bed, man. I was just in the bed. But the fact that because you believe prayer to be your obligation, you were able to do that. You were able to put what you believe over your comfort or over what your nuffs uh, 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 inclined toward. Man, I, that's it right there. That's what we're trying to do in life with regard to our anger or regard to our generosity or trying to position something above what merely makes us comfortable, right? And when you do, the more you do it, you strengthen the soul. And just like with physical activity, if you do it frequently, it's something you come to love. It's something you come to love. There are some people that when they are challenged, their ego and their appetite inclines towards something, their beliefs, their values, their integrity inclines towards something else. And they do what their integrity, their values, their beliefs points toward, man, they feel triumphant. That's like, man, that, it feels like success. Like I did it, I did it. You know, um, you know, I can speak to this. And this is the last thing we'll talk about. As somebody that jogs, you know, all throughout high school, I was an athlete and I was very, very thin. And then after high school, I started studying Islam. And I just, you know, I gained a lot of weight. And I also lost um, the drive to, to exercise. It just, it just, I just didn't have it. You know, I just, I lost the drive to exercise. And I pushed myself once to go out and exercise and it was torture. I remember thinking, man, this is horrible. I'm never gonna do this again. I'm never gonna do this again. And then I pushed myself to go out and exercise again, you know, and I pushed myself to go out and exercise. After a while, it became something I enjoyed. You know, after a while, it became something I enjoyed. Now, I, I very rarely go, two days without jogging, right? Became something I enjoyed. The same thing is true with pushing the soul. At first, it's going to be something, and this was really, really hard. This is really, really hard. The next time it might be really hard, but after a while, you'll begin to taste that halawa, that sweetness, right? You know, it becomes something quite precious to you that you strive for. So, and الحمد لله رب العالمين
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصلوا الحق وتواصلوا الصبر سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.